0: My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Thank you for coming to the tabletop Colin. That's not correct. <laughs> the draw your dice podcast wall. The lines are blurring. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you are in the intro. But as always, the show is never about me. It is about who I have brought to you today. And who I have brought to you today is a longtime listener, first-time guest, maybe multiple-time guest in the future. Who knows? They are a uh, programmer, they are a game designer video games tabletop they love the combination of words and player creativity in both forms i you know i'd love to welcome to the show show ezra zanton hi yay (laughs) come over here sit on the couch ezra all right (laughs) we're role-playing already (laughs) clunk (laughs) now now i gotta make a role-playing
1: game about a podcast
0: (laughs) yeah where is it where is the late night talk show role-playing game hmm you can have that one for free thanks thank you for being here ezra it's an absolute pleasure to have you just in case people are learning about you for the first time today would you just give a brief introduction of who you are sort of what you know, how you relate to the space and any links or resources that people can get to know you or get in touch with you.
1: Yeah, so I'm Ezra Zanton. And as far as I know, I'm the only person with that name since the history of the internet. So if you Google my name, everything about me comes up. It's spelled E-Z-R-A-S-Z-A-N-T-O-N. And you can find my Twitter and my itch.io page. Itch.io is probably where you can go to find the most about me and all my games. Amazing.
0: Great. Great. And you also you're also studying programming, right?
1: Yeah, I am Yeah, yeah, studying computer science at Tufts.
0: Sick. That's great. I'm happy to have you on the show. Happy to have an, a fellow tech enthusiast here. <laughs> yeah. Additionally, you know, just as an additional icebreaker for the people on the show, would you just touch base with like your legacy in tabletop, how you got started in the hobby and how you got like, what was the spark for design for you?
1: Yeah, it was a really fun story. So in middle school, I went to this cafe that was near my house called the red canoe. And I saw sitting there, the mom of one of my friends and I said, you know, where's my friend? And she said, oh, he's upstairs playing D&D. You should go say hi. So I went and said hi. And then they got me to make a character sheet. And then they got me to play in the game. And then I played in that game for years. It was this guy who had seven kids who would just go there every other week and like run D&D for all the neighborhood kids. And yeah, so that's how I like learned about role-playing games in the first place. I took a break from that for a while through like high school and stuff. And then when I got to college, I started running a D&D group for my friends. And that is when I realized that I actually liked making the games more than I liked playing in them. So I started doing video games. And then a while later than that, I started listening to Draw Your Dice. And that was how I got inspired
0: to start making tabletop games. oh <laughs> This is where the this is where a big like sign comes on and the audience awes as well. So if you're listening at home, just just give me a quick aw. Um, yeah, and then imagine all the other people who are doing it also. Yeah. <laughs> send me send me a pipe speak. Send me an audio clip of you awing and I will put it as an aw. Mm, interesting. More immersion for the show. Anyways, <laughs> wow, that that's great. Um I think you are maybe the second person. I can't remember who, but someone else had a very similar story where like They'd never played before. They went into a library, I think. And they were visiting a friend and they were like, hey, where's, I'm making up a name. Where's uh, Max? Oh, Max is upstairs playing D&D with a bunch of people. Huh, really? Then just goes upstairs, makes a character sheet and say no more. So I love that. I think it's amazing. And we have a game to talk about today or a ton of things. I like to, this is very much also like a toolkit game for me. Cause I think it has very nice, like help to design tools or inspire creativity tools as well. But you have Ezra's guide to magic or otherwise significant object. Ezra, what was the spark for this game? And also what is it? Cause it'll okay, be better to so. the designer than me. <laughs> so the
1: game is a world building game Told from the perspective of creating magical things that exist in that world. Like, as you play, you're creating, like, the artifacts of play are these magical objects. And over the course of making them, the prompts are designed. It's a, like a solo or two player journaling game. So the prompts are designed to make you think about things in the world. And so by the end of the game, you have a couple of items and you have this world that the items exist in to use for whatever you want stories or just to have them or to use in another role-playing game mm. also yeah. mechanically the game uses bibliomancy or like a form of bibliomancy where you have a book external to the game that you consult for words to inspire some of the prompts
0: i i love that shout out to another game that is doing using that Similar tech is Legend has it by Adam Bell, where you sort of make roles and then you consult some sort of fantasy novel that you that you bring with you you just check sentences and paragraphs and stuff, and I think that's wicked cool i think it's i think it's i don't know it's just it's just very it's very sick and smart and really versatile. I think that's the big thing for me is that using that kind of tech is very versatile, and this can definitely be. Like, upscaled in... I just thought about Nevin Holmes' Gun and Slinger and how in that game, for anyone who's unfamiliar, or if you are unfamiliar, that's right. it is a game where you play... There are three players. One is the world player, one is gun, and one is the slinger. <laughs> and there are a couple different variants in there, like, I think, Sword and Breaker and something else but it would be really cool to see like a version of this game where like the legendary artifact or significant object is tied into a sort of conversing with another player like the two-player version of this could be something along that lines which is very very cool
1: yeah it actually so it is you can play it with two people and the way that i split it up is one person is the scribe who Mm -hmm. basically like is responsible for interacting with the text of the game. And then the Oracle is the one who's responsible for interacting with the book. Yeah. And then if if you're playing solo, you're the scribe and the Oracle, basically
0: you're both, you have to be. Yeah. Uh, And you have some really like really imaginative uh, prompts and tools in here as well that I, I love. And you also give one really nice thing that you put in here, two things, actually the how to make your own, like your own archetype. So, for anyone who doesn't know, the the piece is divided into the opener, the welcome page, the welcome set of pages, and then archetypes and then twists. And what I love is that in each of those archetypes and twists, you offer like, hey, this is how you can create like not just saying like you can create your own, but how to do it. I think is a very cool thing that there's there's like some designers that do it like I know SRDs are kind of considered that and I think that blades in the dark and stuff and band of blades at the end of the book talk about you can play as in sci-fi or you can add these moves to the game or something like that. So yeah,
1: I was really proud of that those sections because it it comes out of this thing that I was experimenting with in the design of the game, which was defining design pillars for myself that were Mm -hmm. kind of abstract in a way that they could inform lots of my decisions about like designing Mm -hmm. the game. And one of them was that like For me, the main point of the game is like awakening the creative spark in the person playing it or, you Mm -hmm. know, fueling it if it's already awakened to extend the metaphor probably too long. And yeah, so it felt like a natural extension of the game to include ways of the
0: player generating more of the game themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the, the second like really cool bit that you've also added in here is the rules alternatives, like all the different ways you could engage with the prompting of the book, depending on the person who's engaging with it, which is also like very modular of you to consider. Like some people may want that random dice roll or random card pool or, you know, they, where's the rules? Where is it, Jeremy? Jesus. (laughs) Rules alternative. There is where you can also like, use physical objects and do a show and tell, which is very, very cool. And all the different ways that people like to engage with creativity too, like drawing it, writing a short story. And, you know, you specifically point out the game designer, like building your own archetypes and twists. I think it's, I think it's very cool that you thought about all those, what do I want to call them? Points of contact almost. Thanks. I, I want to take a second here to shout
1: out some of the influences of th- influences of the game because i think yeah. if you if you read the game they really wear them on their sleeve but one of them is wander home i think that's probably the biggest inspiration like this game is really an extension of all the things that i love about the character creation in wander home and then also for the rules art alternate specifically i was really drawing from i had just read kenzie's project by a uh, stargazer sasha who mm-hmm. i think has been on this podcast as well and yeah so th- that's the inspirations there
0: probably release both of you at the same time, honestly, cause you're, because your besties. <laughs> well, we're, we're friends on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've both been very kind to each other. You both, you both resonate each other a ton. So ah, cool. Yeah, love that. And, but yeah, it's, it's very, 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 very cool stuff. And there's some really like good design notes for, I think it makes a really good case study for one, providing multiple ways to engage with the same thing Two, allowing for, there are tons of roll and write and roll and prompt games out there and different games use it to different intensities. But I think pick lists in this way, uh, just kind of like letting the player feel like read something and then kind of like feel it out in their soul uh, is really interesting.
1: Yeah, there's this thing that happens when I design these kind of games where I always want to, like, scream at the player playing it, like, but do whatever you want. Like, if you have an idea, please, please, like, these are guidelines and, like, please do what you want with the game. And so that's sort of my attempt at doing that through kindness. (laughs) (laughs) Players really feel like they need permission to break the rules, at least in my experience, because... Like, we're so used to the rules being like, well, if you don't obey the rules, either in some authoritarian way, like, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Or, you know, just more practically, if I break the rules, I might be breaking something about the game and give myself a bad experience. So mm-hmm. I try to really call out when there are ways that like, I, I really feel like I could could have designed this either way here. So, you know, it's up to you, but I'll give you like my recommendation for what I think is
0: best yeah you always you always put little bits of like your own idea here your own idea there like oh yeah uh, I think always yeah
1: pretty much every prop pick list has your yeah. own idea at the end um, <laughs> and <laughs> that's an interesting design decision too because t- towards the beginning of the game, I was really focused on making it concise and like really small file size for for some reason that was in my head, and mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, you know what I'll do I'll, I'll just put. At the very beginning, in every pick list, if you want, you can add your own idea. And I added that and no one really paid attention to it. Cause, like, for one thing, like, do you even read the beginning section? And then also, you've probably forgotten about it by the time you get around to doing things. Mm. And so I was like, you know what? It doesn't actually add any like real weight to the game to just put your own idea in all these pick lists and it really emphasizes the point that I want to make so yeah I chose to put it in all of them and yeah I'm happy with the choice to do that
0: do you have do you have a favorite archetype and twist in the in the book Mm,
1: I think I do yeah so the key is my favorite because it's it's one of the archetypes you know I'm going to read it just so people get a sense of what these kind of things look like so the key a key opens something which is meant to be locked away The first prompt is consult your tome. So that's looking through the book for a word to define the keys for the form is, for example, it could be like iron, a tattoo, gravel, something that like the key is. And then you Mm. choose one detail about the key, which could be intricate patterns, deceptively simple, abnormally big, abnormally small, or your own idea. And then there's this prompt that you choose from two lists, to complete a sentence. And the sentence is, the key unlocks blank of blank. And I won't read the whole list, but it could be the key unlocks like the crypt of the eldest dragon or the secret of the shining queen. And then you describe how the key unlocks the lock when wielded by the right person with the right technique. And all all the pages have a form pretty similar to this, but the key, when I designed the key, that was really when I realized what I wanted the rest of the shape of the game to be. And I sort of redid all the other archetypes to be more like it. And yeah, I, I really like the like filling in the blanks of a sentence thing because it, it's really rich.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's also a world where I don't know, I could say the key unlocks the ice lich, the ice lich of the spell. Right. Or or something like that. Like I could really like. Whoa he <laughs> didn't think about reversing them about that but that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah the forest of the heart like what does that even mean yeah uh, we get really introspective <laughs> uh but yeah i think but just with that example alone you show the freedoms that are capable in expression through your game which is something not not a ton of games can tote especially when we get more like setting or mechanical intensive games like you were mentioning some sometimes you feel like if you take something away or do something differently it can affect the game in a pretty negative way mm. or if you operate outside of the intended setting and this varies with intensity but like what would be the best example of like a game that's really tied to its setting like kind of in in the, the dark or, or something intended? Yeah, Blades in the Dark is kind of like really, because the words are kind of tied into the genre that it expresses. Mm -hmm. Like to take it out of genre would change the words, which we've seen in all its Forge in the Dark iterations. So I think Mm -hmm. that's a good example of like something just like a little too like coupled into something else. And it can feel like it's fighting you when you make choices outside of those bounds, which it has its own. Pros and cons, right? It either adds a great guided experience, but then, like, what if you want to be unguided for a little bit? Yeah,
1: I actually, this game is pretty good about that, but there are some cases, like, for instance, in this prompt specifically, I have the Ice Lich, and mm-hmm. I wrote that without even thinking about it. I you know it stayed in despite many edit passes until the like publici- publication. And then my mom read it and she was like,
0: I don't know what a lich is. And I was like, oh, right. That's like a D&D word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. Like jargon. We make assumptions about that. Everyone might understand.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I try to avoid it when I can,
0: but it it's,
1: it can be tough sometimes.
0: Yeah. And what is
1: your favorite twist yeah so my favorite twist is definitely cursed and again because of through the history of the game cursed was something that i knew i wanted to have at the very beginning and it had many many different forms along the way because i didn't even know what the overall form of the game was going to be i just knew that these items could be cursed in some way like initially you were a shopkeeper and i was thinking that you were gonna have to it, initially, it wasn't even like a like a, a world-building game. It was more like a regular RPG where you were going to be a shopkeeper and you had to like make items and then sell them for money. And there was going to be some entity that came and was like, I'll curse your items if you give me money. And then so some of your items would be cursed. None of that ended up in the game. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. But Cursed survives because, for one thing, I wanted the game to be able to produce the one ring from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Like, so one of the options in like the cursed prompt section is that, you know, you attract the attention of a powerful entity and then you get to choose what the entity is. So like, yeah, I had a couple of touchstones like that or like the moving castle from Howl's moving castle mm-hmm. um, that where in every iteration. I was like, can the game still make that? And then I assumed that, you know, if it can make the things that I want to make it, then if people make different decisions along the way, it can make like sort of in all the space between them, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. 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 And that's a an in- really interesting way to think about it too. When you have like these guiding touchstones that are like, this is a thing that's really evocative to me. So, like, if you had just those two, right. As an example, just the one ring, and just how's moving castle. And like, what could that, what could all the spaces in between be like, if it can produce not only those two things, but everything around that can, can help, like, inform a designer who makes this style of of piece that their prompts are working. Like, their prompts are allowing for expression, which is, instead of something a little bit more guided, like, I don't know, a Blades in the Dark prompting or something like
1: that. Yeah, yeah. I I really, in general, like the process of, like, making individual bits of content, not quite knowing how they're going to fit in. And then Mm -hmm. once I have a couple of them starting to look for patterns and thinking like, right. Oh, you know, maybe these are archetypes and these are twists. Ooh. And there've, there've been some prompts that have gone back and forth between like, Oh, is it an archetype or is it a twist? And what does it mm. actually mean for something to be a twist? What does it mean for it to be an archetype? Which eventually I settled on. Okay. Archetypes decide like what the thing does and what it generally looks like. And then the twists
0: are like extra things, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Set dressing almost or like a wrapper of some sort. Also, I also see the twist as, like, the plot of the thing. I know that yeah. in the in the archetypes, it kind of, like, says, like, how is this used? But I really think the twist is something that says, like, this is the journey, like, that you're going to have to experience along with this item. Yeah, kind definitely. Of the archetype sets the beginning and end points, and then the twist fills in the journey.
1: Yeah, like, uh, the, there's a twist broken. That, that, when I wrote that, that's when I realized, yeah, basically what you just said, which is that... Um, the twists have an, like tie into the rest of the world as like what you could potentially do with it. Cause like an item that's broken, that kind of implies that someone can fix it. And mm-hmm. so then maybe there's a quest to go fix the item. And so one of the prompts in broken is choose a being who can fix it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to go find that being, which is, which is really cool. And you can, what's nice about making, Pieces like this is that they can be coupled with other, I want to say games is the word that keeps coming to mind, but it's not just games, but you can pair it with a lot of other, you know, I myself have been thinking a ton about stories that are connected together or strung through different mechanics. Mm. So like an example I might say here is, I want to design a D and D character. For example, I can use this to really like do a tied object sort of story. like, Oh, this sword has been passed through my family for generations, but I can like really dig into that. And that's like my personal quest or something like that. Or even not D and D I could take this and pair it with say, I honestly, you could do it with blades in the dark and be like, you know, there are, there's demons in the stories and ghosts and all these things. And like, I look at the living twist and immediately one thing that comes to mind is like the, I don't know why swords are a powerful history, a construct, but I am thinking about Masamune, the cursed sword, like the, the sword that wants to kill. yeah uh, And that could be like something interesting in Blades in the Dark, like a, a demon possessed sword or something like that. That's kind of like causing you to be the next I don't know, Jack the Ripper situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, great tool, great toolkit game. Ezra, great job.
1: Thank Everyone you. clap for
0: Ezra. Yeah, <laughs> Clap it up.
1: And again, you want to send in the wave file to Jeremy, and then he can edit it into the next episode.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, 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 yes. Please, if I see it, it will happen. I will, <laughs> I will make it a thing. Amazing stuff from your guide, your personal guide. I also love that you put your name on it. I am still embarrassed about that, honestly. (laughs) No! I think it's really cool. I think it's like the Volo's Guide to Monsters or the fucking... What is that? E. Emmanuel? That is not the name. I can't can't believe I can't. It'll come to me. Oh, uh, Elminster. Elminster's Guide to Magic or
1: something. Yeah, yeah, those are definitely on my mind when I named it. I had a ton of names that I was thinking about, and I posted a Twitter poll, and this one was by far and away the winner. So I was like, all right, I can name it this, and it's not my fault. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I can pass on blame to someone else. Oh, yeah. There's also there's a GDC talk by Bennett Foddy and Zach Gage where they talked about naming their games with their own names and how awkward it was. But then I was like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, when I played Getting Over It with Benefati, it felt like I'm kind of having a conversation with a designer, and I kind of wanted this game to feel like that, so I decided mm. to lean
0: into it. But that doesn't mean it's still, you know, it's still a little embarrassing. <laughs> Aw. Well, I, I think it's great. Thank uh, you. So, you know, transitioning a little bit here, we we really got into the guide, but I know that a kind of a topical thing we discussed off mic was to talk about, you know, video game influences into the tabletop role-playing space. Uh, Ezra, What do you have opening thoughts about that? Because you know I have thoughts about that. <laughs> what are your thoughts about it? I have so many thoughts. The main thing
1: is, c- coming from designing video games, I, I'm very conscious of the things that tabletop games can do well because I really want to lean into those when I'm making them because otherwise, why am I not just making a video game? Um, And some of the main things for me, for one thing, tabletop games have to be a lot simpler in the information that they track. Or, I mean, Mm -hmm. they don't have to be like, you know, you can look at Gloomhaven and go, (laughs) you know, (laughs) But generally, you want people to be able to keep track of stuff in their heads. And the analogy that I think is interesting is, you know, games are basically software that runs on your brain. And in a video game, part of the fun is that you get to keep track of all these crazy stuff and then show the player at the end, like the thing that they did at the very beginning of the game and you go, Whoa, but you know, you can't really do that in a tabletop game. However, one thing that tabletop games are great at is, and and the video games are horrible at, to be honest, is like taking, uh, combinations of things and filling in the gaps between them, which is basically what Ezra's guide is all about. Like all these pick lists and, you know, the game is in connecting one pick list to the other. If you were designing a video game that did that, you'd have to code in like every single case between them. And at that point, like what's even the point of, of doing this? So yeah, that's one thing that I think tabletop games do really well in comparison to video games. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like also you get multiplayer for free, which is great. (laughs) Yeah. What
0: are your thoughts? I'm curious. Oh, so many, so many. First to, to sort of like riff on what you were talking about. Yeah. I think for the cognitive load, portion of that conversation is there is there are there's like a certain I want to almost say limit there's kind of like an almost a cap on like the physical items and the constant like mental rechecking of the quote unquote game state at the table versus a computer that is like processing random numbers and turning that all into like an infographic for you right like a right. health bar or a stamina bar it's all a little bit more digestible. Yeah. Whereas even if you do a health bar and a stamina bar or whatever, it is the player who is erasing and then shading in that bar every, which is an extra step, right? right. And I think there are really cool, like for, for Umbral Dive, for example, and this is not like at a point to like to toot my own horn, but it's something, it's the only like frame of reference. So I guess sight's yeah, it's, also- it's a good example to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's like, Uh, When I play D&D 5th edition, I think one of the reasons people fall into, like, decision paralysis is all the options that they have to hold in their head most Mm. of the time. I know there's, like, a character sheet that you can, quote-unquote, record actions on, but that doesn't really, like, splice out what you're truly capable of in your turn, right? You You have to sift through, like, what is an action? What's a bonus action? How much movement do I have left? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So what if you had, like, for Umbral Dive, I'm, I'm using, like, an action board where you can put tokens or cards. I don't know what the fuck it's going to look like yet. But it's <laughs> taking programming game elements. So if I, like, on turn one, I want to use my attack action. And then, like, turn two, I want to use a bonus action. And maybe split some movement in between Or Like, maybe I want to spend some movement points in those two sets. And then after that, I want to program, like a block or a dodge or a non-action ability or something like just to mm. give some like frame of context for anyone who's not either engaged with umbral dive or needs D to like parse out what the fuck i'm talking but it's like just this way of like see, visualizing what you're doing in planning for the turn and you can sort of like quickly adjust those things as the game state changes right in in the contrast when you don't have that in D fifth edition you're like you're in a five-person play group, right? Five players and then a sixth GM, and you're like waiting for your turn. And someone like, "Oh, I cast Solar Solar Beam or Sun or whatever the fuck that mo- cleric uh, spell is called, Sun Ray." <laughs> and then I cast Fireball. Ooh, I'm gonna control that guy and use Crown of Madness and move him over here. By the time it gets to your turn, you're like. Well, I was going to fucking attack all these guys. But they're all dead or moved away from me. So yeah. I'm going to put my axe in the ground. <laughs> that's all I can do. Which, yeah. you know, is a whole other class design discussion. But having something that can, like, help you parse the changes in the game state, I think, is is a really powerful tool that can be examined more. And that that's, like, inspired from games like, what is it called? Mechs and Minions, which is the League of Legends programming game. Mm. But also Scythe. In that, like, you can you always see your options on the board. You can just move your little guy around to plan your next turn or something. So you yeah, have turn. like
1: a, a board in front of you where you're like yeah. swapping around. Like, okay, now I'm going to attack. Now I'm going to cast a spell, and then yeah. you lock it in. And then like everyone goes around and does their thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. It, an interlevy turn structure is what I've Whoa. seen it. <laughs> Basically, it's everyone goes at the same time during. Right. A, phase. Like, everyone does the attack phase, and then everyone does the defense phase, or Mm. whatever. However, that's parsed out. So that's what an interleaved turn structure is. Cool. And then sequential is the opposite, where it's the fixed turn order, uh, like in D&D and stuff, where everyone does all their phases on their own turn. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's that, and then, now I've forgotten the other two things that you mentioned.
1: Oh. The, like... Players being able to fill in the gaps between options.
0: Yes, emergent design things.
1: Yeah, like Uh, sort of creating evocative stuff that players fill in the, yeah, basically fill it in, in their imagination.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think tabletop is the space that is open for that because, like you said, to code, even at like a procedural level, like I think about roguelikes and action RPGs, specifically like the top-down Diablos and Path of Exile and the soon-to-come Lost Ark. Dungeons can be randomized based on tiles and monster sets. But again, that's only so many, like while it feels infinite, there's only so many combinations that the game can create. It's just about numbers. Whereas in, in tabletop land, you fucking can do whatever, like you truly no limit. You can, the scope can elast a band to and fro at a crazy rate.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, said one more thing. I really got lost in my programming shtick. (laughs) Hmm.
1: I think the only other thing I said was the thing about like computers. Yeah. Like software that runs on people's brains, basically being a role playing game.
0: Coined on the show all the time. I'd say ever since my episode with Amber Seeger, I think it is. I've always. I, you know, I probably it. got it from the show, and then forgot about where I got it from. <laughs> Oops. No, that's <laughs> okay. I. <laughs> I think it makes a lot of sense. It's like not every software works for everyone. Everyone has different hardware, and sometimes computers don't always speak well with one another for unseen reasons. Sometimes, uh, so I think it's a really good analogy in like understanding. How your game is absorbed or downloaded by a person, and yeah. look about like what is that on what is that tutorial onboarding? You know, it's Clippy coming in, being like, mm-hmm. "Hey, I see that you're uh, trying to write something. Do you need help with a fucking comma, dude?"
1: Yeah, honestly, this idea is sort of how I came to bibliomancy being a mechanic in, in Ezra's Guide as well, because I was bit, kind of wanting like a random word generator. And I was like, well, I can't just code a random word generator. So how do I get random words? And I was like, ah, I know things that people have that have a lot of words in them, books. But then, you know, coming in with the the other point of like people filling in the gap, you know, if I was doing it for a computer game, it would be, it would just give you one word. And then you would have to like work with that word. Uh, The way I word it in the game is actually that you turn to a page and then you look for a word that jumps out to you. So in practice, you actually see a lot of different words, and then you go, hmm, maybe not that one, maybe not that one. Ooh, that one jumps out to me. And then you do that one. So it's like you're kind of already selecting, like, what your brain wants to
0: see from the page to go with that. It's like those word searches that, like, what are the first three words? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first three like words that. are going to be your next year. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. But to now go off your question, like, what are my thoughts? And thank you for asking. It is... A, I am specifically making a game about like skirmish combat and looking to like update the traditional model of like the grid and the D 20 or the theater of the mind stuff. And like, how can we make things more fluid and open and all this stuff. And my current inspirations as of today are like God of war and doom eternal for like how enemies work looking Mm -hmm. at raid battle design from like Final Fantasy XIV, the critically acclaimed Final Fantasy XIV with the free trial, getting the also award-winning Heaven's Ward up to level 60, no paid time whatsoever (laughs) game that you can play. And, or like World of Warcraft, Guild Wars, things like that. And how uh, you can really elevate boss design. Because one thing that I think as a GM and maybe this is my own personal whininess. But if I'm a player in a game, I also want to do cool stuff. And sometimes, because D&D 5 designed around the players and play, player facing victory instead of the GM. Mm-hmm. You get all these like cool dragons and death knights, and liches, and all these weird monsters. But... Most of the time, they're gonna have to die. And you're like kind of forced to pull your punches in some ways because there's mm. no like quote unquote aggro system. Like every time you choose to have a monster attack something, I mean, you could do it randomly, but then that's also no fun because then you're like, well, the game was random and I also didn't get to play. Oh, there's a cool game that I'm currently playing called Emberwind that has some like AI faux tech, AI enemy tech in it where they have a focus or a target. So it's something like this: enemy will always attack the highest health uh, player, or this enemy will always attack the highest armored player, or even something like more zanine specific: this enemy will always attack what the what this enemy type is attacking. Like in combat. Ah, that's cool. So I find like focuses or targeting uh, really interesting because what that also does is it can bring back like taunt mechanics where like it can break that focus. If something says this enemy always attacks the most armor target, but someone goes, okay, I'm going to use like, even like a ranged person, I'm going to use like a taunting shot. And now it has to chase me across the board that might waste its attack. Tons of different, like now like combat variables come into play. And it takes, it takes two things off of the GM in this manner. In that, a, you never feel like you have to pull your punches because what you design this car- this enemy to do is this like specific task and it will continue to do that program over and over again. And the fun is like building the puzzle. And mm. But secondly, you then like, don't have to worry about how you're attacking or doing actions because the game also has like monster rules, like specific tactics that they use. So that's like for mobs and stuff. And then for bosses, they have, tactical patterns so it's like you can use move a b a c or you can move you can do combination a a b d or you can do like one two three or two two three or something like that and you can sort of like choose you can choose like a set so it's a lot of balancing work for me as a designer but i think it's one of those things where like you don't ever have to worry about pulling your punches or doing something too aggressive because there'll be like a charge limit or whatever and you don't have to worry about like making weird attack decisions based on the narrative. Like you never have to feel like you're always in a losing position. Not that you should play antagonistically, but like, <laughs> because of the AI, you're not in a position to like lose from the start. You're in a position to challenge the players from the start and they have to figure out the puzzle you placed in front of them. And if they solve the puzzle, you're like, "Yay, you solved the puzzle. And if they don't solve the puzzle, Death isn't permanent in my game, which is probably also something to consider, the Hmm. quote-unquote respawn. But if they fail, it's like, hey, that's all right, you know about this enemy type now. Next time you encounter it, you'll probably be better prepared, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, AI tech is is something I've been thinking a ton about.
1: One thing that I did when I was DMing was I I like to give really powerful consumable items to the players because then if Mm -hmm. I ever was like made an encounter too hard or something. Then they just use the consumable items. And then
0: I go, oh, okay, that was probably too hard. And then I can yeah. give them more later. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah, like yeah. A, it's like a failsafe safe for them. That's smart. And something I I've also considered because part of, you know, playing the JRPG is like, Oh sick. I have like Phoenix downs or high Potions just in case. And I didn't sell all 99. <laughs> like I haven't <laughs> <until> right now. <laughs> so I've collected them all, but it's kind of like stealing from, I don't know if you're familiar with iron sworn, but in but in that game you have a supply track that's shared amongst all players So mm. I have, like an item pool that like if someone go or like an item charge system where like hey i need to use a potion this round cool it subtracts one from your total supply pool or oh shit someone got knocked out i have to use a phoenix down to revive them that's going to cost 4 from the pool so you have like a specific set list of items that you can like pull from it's kind of a amorph- amorphous how much of each you have but there is a limit right uh, i think that's a really good idea that you that you've done for your games to like have say like okay i'm gonna ramp this up like kind of as high as i feel like but i've given them the ability to like fall back on a thing if they need to like a like a oh they can you could even like custom tailor it to like the theming of the fight or the dungeon or something where it's like oh this enemy does a ton of poison like effect so you know antidote is now like a special item in this region Ooh. like you could even tie it to regions which is really fascinating it's like okay we know that like there are poisonous animals in the swamp and stuff so now your item kit includes antidotes you don't have to guess like I think that's one of the one of the weird like sometimes weird things about items especially when you're playing in like kind of like a social deduction style of GMing where like the players are the majority but don't know anything and you are the gm and you know everything so you're like oh yeah poisonous crocodiles if you put it in their item sets so like oh there's probably poisonous enemies here at least we have antidotes to take care of that if we don't want to change our spells or something yeah that's really clever yeah even shops and rpgs do that too like oh you you'll now encounter your first poison enemy they're now antidotes in this shop or whatever
1: yeah. Another thing that you made me think of when you're talking about building encounters is sort of like puzzles or mm-hmm. like the, the, the GM sort of crafting the, the encounter. To challenge the players. There was D D 4E adventure that I made with a friend in sixth grade uh, that <laughs> we basically ran up the encounter like tried to make the hardest encounters that we possibly could within the rules of having them be quote unquote reasonable, according to the <laughs> the Dungeon Masters handbook or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Um and <laughs> there was one encounter that we made where it was seven of this one enemy where whenever it took damage, it split the damage between all the other characters. <laughs> So you basically couldn't kill any of them until you killed <laughs> all of them. <laughs> and, uh, I think about that fairly frequently. <laughs> you know, the peak and or trough of my game design career where no one's ever played it and no one ever will, but I love it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's but that is but what's interesting is that that's not something that's unheard of in the, in like the raid battle design space, right? Mm. There are a ton of boss encounters where like, specifically I'm thinking of a fight in a raid called Alexander. Alexander is this giant, like, sentient god robot that's asleep. And there are goblins, like, harvesting its insides for tech. And cool. <laughs> one one of the fights, it's like got it's like concept of like white blood cells or like giant mechs that live inside of it. And like Whoa. it. Yeah. It's great. It's very cool. I highly recommend looking up like the storyline or the series of fights. If you know nothing else about final fantasy 14, it's like my favorite raid in the entire thing, but there's a boss that comes out and it's first, it's a single boss, but when you get it to 70% health, a second exact copy of it spawns. Now you have to deal with like double mechanics (laughs) and stuff, double the same mechanics. Like they both launch missiles at the same time. They both have like these shrinking zones or whatever. But the, the catch 22 is that you have to kill them both at the same, or you have to kill them both within 10 seconds of each other. Because once you mm. kill one, the second one immediately begins casting a self detonate that will wipe the entire raid if you don't Whoa. kill it in time. <laughs> you have to like play this balancing game of like we need more DPS over here, now we need more DPS back over here, trying to split it up evenly or whatever, um, or cleave them down together. But that's in the in the extreme or the savage version, which is the harder scaled version of it. Mm-hmm. When you bring them close together, they get a. Buff on them that pre- like prevents ninety percent of the damage they have, so you can't cleave them together. But Damn. yeah, I think about like why isn't that like that's I don't know that just doesn't feel mega possible in five e. I think your four e idea is, is super cool. I guess you could pull it off. And well, it's they just, were just
1: like already in the monster manual. It was if anyone's curious, they were myconids to so like fungus people oh. basically, and they. The idea of oh, sorry. The idea was that they like shared a root system. <laughs> That's smart. That's good. Yeah, I, I don't That's think anyone good. intended for there to just be seven of them, but,
0: but yeah, it, I think it's just the fixed turn order that I dislike. I said that in my devlog for the show. It's the fixed turn order that just doesn't do it for me. I think everyone needs to be able to operate within a similar like six second time span instead of like six seconds individually within six seconds.
1: <laughs> it yeah, just doesn't it, like, it parse my brain. Structure definitely makes sense to me, especially because then you can have like, okay, everyone's going to attack before they move. So then if anyone moved, you know, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, that's all to say to, to loop it all back together. I think that what we can learn from video games is that there's cool ways to do like, they're definitely board games that have programming tech in them. And I think it's something that can be a little bit more abused specifically to like skirmish games. That's where my head's at for video game absorption. Right. Yeah. 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 And then procedural generation stuff like Diablo and et cetera, um, or whatever field systems, arenas, whatever. But yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from video games since video games learn from tabletop games. Like when chainmail and regular D and D was invented, the kind of first RPG. I don't think it was the first, actually, maybe been like the third, but the, like, one of the big attempts was Ultima. I think it was like Ultima Online or something like that, was trying to parse how to do D&D as a video game. And oh, yeah. I mean, been, it's been like the model.
1: Video games have been hugely influenced by role-playing games. Yeah. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited for the waves of video games that are influenced by like the current indie scene of role-playing games, which, I mean, no promises, but I would really like to make at some point like a video game version of Ezra's guide where it like gives you prompts and you type it in and stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love a good, like terminal game. Yeah. Be wicked cool. And it could like fill. Oh yeah. That's good. That's good. Thank you. But no promises. <laughs> no promises. <laughs> no promises. Well, we're, we're sort of at the top of the show here. Ezra, is there anything else you sort of wanted to get it, get into today?
1: I had some ideas for the sort of like, best practices or tips for listeners. Sure. Um, we got into some of them already, but a couple. So one is that, um, you know, when I was prepping for this interview, I was really appreciating that I had kept copies of different versions of my game. Mm-hmm. And it's really helpful, too, because I can go back and see all of the things that I cut. So, like, for instance, the wand used to be an archetype in the game, which is not in the current version. But, you know, I might want to make a sequel at some point and, yeah. you know, I can have add the wand then. Um, and yeah, it's just interesting to see how the game evolves and what paths it took and stuff like playtesting is so hugely important. There's a funny anecdote from a sort of like spin-off game that I was working on for a bit where I was going to use consult your tome for an odd or an even page number. And then you were going to do something based on that, like as a random number generator, at which point. I realized, well, not when I was making it, but when I tried playtesting it for the first time, it was immediately obvious that you cannot use books for generating odd or even numbers because it feels really unsatisfying. Because once you open it, you realize that all the odd numbers are on one side and all the even numbers on the other side. So that it's is something. caught me
0: by surprise.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was dumbstruck. <laughs> so it works yes. for generating numbers one to ten, but it does not work for other even numbers. Yeah, and then uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I think it is really, really a good idea to create design pillars and then like phrase them in sort of almost poetic ways, like you know, sparking creativity in in the p- player. Mm-hmm. And then you can use those whenever you have a tough design decision. You can go to the design pillars and either make a decision based on the pillars, or if you're you're really leaning towards one side and the pillars don't support that, then you realize, okay, I need a new pillar or I need to change something. And I think you can make really cohesive games that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's I was watching the GDC talks for God of War and for Doom Eternal. And they, you know, they're they're action-style games, so it's like the most important genre for what they wanted to design, but they each one different teams but each one had a, like a sentence that was like, how should the combat feel? Yeah. And for God of War 4, it was, what was it? Plow through playfully. And so that's the great. Whole concept, yeah, the whole concept of the game is that like, Kratos should always be moving forward, should be mowing down tons of enemies in that one man army feel. And you should be able to like, have fun by juggling enemies and knocking them back and like watching all these ragdoll effects happen. And then doom eternal was, um, push forward something. I can't remember what the last word was, but the idea is that like, the player should always be on the move. Like standing still is actually a detriment in the game because the AI reacts. I learned that Doom Eternal, the 2016, I think that is. If some, if I'm, it's whatever the latest one is. So if someone's like, that's not the right game. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but in the programming, if the soldier stands still, the soldier you play stands still. The AI actually get more accurate and deal more damage to you. That's crazy. When you start to move. It, they actually purposely offset the accuracy because they wanna they want you to be engaged in movement at all times. So I found that really fascinating as well. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Like if you can find like a sentence or some like keywords or like you know the design principles of your game, and you're able to come back to it and say like, hey, does it fulfill our fat fantasy of plow through? playfully if kratos is always defending right like if kratos's best options are to defend or heal that the game's not serving what we want it to feel like it doesn't feel like god of war It feels like god of hunker down behind a tree for (laughs) seconds every 10 seconds
1: yeah and it's so useful too because so many times you come to a point where you're like these two things are both really good but they'd be good in different games so which one do i choose and it really helps you there
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that 100%. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Those are helpful tips. Thank you, Ezra. Well, with that, I think we're we're gonna come to the tail end here. Ezra, thank you for being on the show so much. I really appreciate it. You can give yourself a quick outro of who you are, where people can reach you, get your stuff, all these links that Ezra will be providing will be down in the show notes for your access listeners.
1: Yeah. So I've been Ezra Zanton Again, last name S-Z-A-N-T-O-N. ezrazanton.itch.io, my I-O page page. Zanton is my Twitter handle. But again, if you just search my name in Google, all that stuff will come up. Yeah.
0: And if you want to hear, I believe, a playthrough of Ezra's Guide to Magic, you just did an episode of Jeff Stormer on the Party of One podcast. Right? I did. That was yeah. really fun. Yeah. So if you want to hear it in action, go check that out and say hello to Ezra and Jeff in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But with that, uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you for hanging out with us. I learned a lot from Ezra. I hope you did too. And we will catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Ezra. Bye. Bye. And that will be a... Hey there, listeners. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Ezra and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes for getting in touch with Ezra and other content with similar topics. Support Jeremy and the DYD podcast by reviewing the show or joining the community Discord server. Thanks again for listening. And remember that design is a marathon. So enjoy the journey. and Have a great day.